Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 14 and following uh, today. Uh, um, I was thinking about uh, the, the mountains this week. How many of you have been to the mountains? I know you guys have. Well, you used to live in the mountains, didn't you? No. No? Have a cat had a cabin in the mountains, so you go and visit the mountains. If you've been to, been to the mountains. Um, I, I just think one of the most uh, things that I think is just absolutely incredible are mountains. I just, uh, I, I love them. I, I, I haven't had a lot of experiences or opportunities to be in the mountains, but the times that I've been in there, I've just, there is just nothing in my mind like, like that experience and being, you know, standing up on the mountaintop and, and just being able to look down into, over everything and just see everything and to see it, it's just incredible to, to see that and to see everything in every direction and I I think that it would really be cool to live on a mountain um, and yet that being said I realize that there's truth to the old uh, axiom that says uh, you know every mountain has its valley um, so actually maybe we weren't meant to live on the mountain um, but uh, maybe we were only supposed to visit them um, but, you know, in, in, in a sense, it's kind of troubling to me when I think about uh, that after you've been on the mountain, that the, the chances are that you're also going to have a valley. And I can't help but think of, of this guy here, a fellow by the name of Harry Truman, not the president, but this is Harry, I can't remember his middle initial, Harry J. Truman. Anybody remember this story? Mount St. Helens? Um, in May of 1980, he's the guy that was on Mount, Mount St. Helens, and, and one of the things that he said is, says, no man will ever take me off of this mountain. And technically, that was probably true, <laughs> um, right? except that the mountain is no longer there, and so I don't know where Harry is. <laughs> um, he stood his ground, and there was big, big coverage of that. You could ask Martin Luther King, Jr., in April of 1968, in fact, it was April 3rd of 1968. Not a real important date in our household. Um, happens to be Mike's birthday, by the way. But, not in 1968, but in April of 1968, April 3rd, he made this comment. He said, I don't know what will happen now. We've got difficult days ahead, he says, but it doesn't matter with me because I've been to the mountaintop. Like anyone else, I would like to live a long life, but I'm not concerned with that. I just want to do God's will, and he's allowed me to go up on the mountain. I see the promised land, he said. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight we as, we as a people will get to the promised land. I'm happy tonight that I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And less than 24 hours later, he was dead. Every mountain has its valley. You could ask Moses, having been up on the top of the mountain in the presence of God, and only to come down and then find all of his people worshiping the golden calf. You could ask Elijah, uh, who up on the mountaintop saw the hand of God with uh, light the fire and burn the calf and the rocks and the water only to come down into the valley and face his chief ne nemesis, a, fellow, a lady by the name of Jezebel. 
You could ask Peter from just a week ago, who are you? Oh, you're the Christ. Get behind me, Satan. Every mountain has its valley. You could ask Jesus, who came down off of the mountain, coming into Jerusalem, riding on the back of a donkey, with people laying palm branches and coats in the path, and shouting Hosanna, only to have, in just a matter of hours, those Hosannas turn to the cry, crucify him. Every mountain seems to have its valley, and I think that that's what happens in our text. Uh, you may remember last week where we were up on the mountain, mountain of transfiguration where Peter and James and John had gone up to with Jesus up onto the top of the mountain, and, and Moses and Elijah showed up, and, and not only that, but God showed up also. But now they have come down off the mountains. And as they come down off the mountains, they, we find them encountering a situation which I think is a bit odd. In fact, it's, it's Mark chapter 9, as I said, verse 14, if you turn there. Nine disciples are waiting down in the valley for Peter and James and for John and Jesus to come down off the mountain. And, and quite frankly, I think that they're having a little valley experience down there. Look at verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to, to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Verse 19, O unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring, me, bring the boy to me. And so they brought him with... When the Spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into, the, into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has it he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus. Everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, This kind can only come out by prayer. There's a couple of verses here that I in this text that I just I, I want to call your attention to. First of all, verse number 17. If you have your Bibles, just take a peek at that. I don't think I have it up on the screen here. Verse 17, he says, Teacher, I brought you to my son, 
He's possessed by a spirit. The spirit has robbed him of his speech. Whenever it seizes him, seizes him, it throws him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and he gnashes his teeth and he becomes rigid. And then you drop down to verse number 20. You have the spirit immediately throwing this boy into a convulsion. He, he falls to the ground. He rolls around. He's foaming at the mouth. You drop down to verse number 26 and you see the spirit shrieking and convulsing the, him and, and violently uh, he comes out and, and the boy looks so much like a corpse and many said he is dead. Well, here is the simple truth when we look at this. Satan seeks to destroy believers. That's the simple truth. I think that it's the subtle message that comes through Mark's gospel, gospel so clearly every single time that you encounter a demon possession Every time Satan gets into the scene, there is something done to destroy or to distort the image of God in humanity. Now, that's not only true in Mark's gospel. That's been true ever since the very beginning of time. When you look at the story of humanity and you start out with that very first couple, Adam and Eve, as soon as Satan shows up, guess what you have? Trouble. You come a generation later and you've got Cain and Abel and and what do you have? You have murder. And you come down through history to a man after God's own heart, a fellow by the name of David. And as soon as Satan gets into the mix, David has this adulterous relationship with, and, and murders the woman, woman's husband in order to cover it up. I mean, you cannot watch Satan interact with humanity without discovering that his one primary purpose is to destroy those who are made in the image of God, those of us who are made in God's image. To distort that image as much as he, can, he knows how. Unfortunately, Satan is not stupid. His temptations are incredibly subtle. He, he knows how to get into the hearts of, of people. And so, for example, it's, I, it's such a simple thing. He, he never tempts us to do something stupid. I mean, it, it is stupid, but he never tells us that it's stupid. I mean, you know, I learned that at a very early age. I think I was nine or ten years old, and I, after church, I went to the filling station across the street, and, 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 and it looked really good, and I saw it there, and it, it was a pack of gum, and I thought to myself, why shouldn't I? You know, it's right there on the shelf. Why shouldn't I take that? The only problem was that my dad, just a few minutes later, found out about it right away. He was fairly perceptive when things like that. And the thing that he did is he grabbed me by the shoulder and he marched me back right into that store and he made me stand in front of that counter and admit to that person behind the counter that I stole that pack of gum. Now, I never would have stolen it had I known how embarrassing it was going to be. But see, Satan didn't come along and say, you know, I want to make you really, really uncomfortable, so take that pack of gum. No, he said, I want you to enjoy that gum. Well, that's really a simple example. We could all share some stories from our lives just to highlight the fact that Satan doesn't tempt you with the pain, right? Because Satan isn't an idiot. He doesn't come along and tell you the obvious. 
He comes along and He tells you a lie to get you to move from the place where you think that you're supposed to be into something that you think that you're supposed to have. And then He cuts the rug out from under you so fast that you have no idea what you just did. I think it was C.S. Lewis who once said that there are two opposite extremes that we sometimes face. There are those who just don't want to believe that Satan could actually be real on the one side. And that there are those on the other side who basically people are just so fascinated with him. And both extremes, he says, are deadly. I really don't want to elevate Satan. But I do, want, I do think that we should be aware that we live in a world where Satan is alive and well. The Bible calls him the angel of light. He's crafty. He's sly. And some of the ways that he tries to influence us, I think, are very subtle. Now, some, of, some, of, some things are just obviously satanic, satanic things. I, I understand that. We all know that. We see that kind of thing all around us, things like witchcraft and Wiccan and, and devil worship. And, well, we may not see that right here in our community, but we've heard and we've seen that around us. Most of those kinds of things are, most things, though, are, are not quite so obvious, I think. When I first went, met Mike, um, not this Mike, Mike was about 18 years old, and he came to our church with his girlfriend to talk about marriage, and I've shared some stories with you about Mike before. not going to tell you about the time that he stole my truck and tried to sell it to another guy. Um, well, actually, yeah. I've told you about that story, but Mike came to get married. He never did get married. This is the first time I met him, but I began to talk to Mike, or I began to actually develop a friendship with him. In fact, I, I helped him find a job, and, and, and we also began to talk about a relationship with Jesus. Mike was very interested in that, and I would visit him regular, uh, or he. In fact, one night, um, I had the privilege of baptizing Mike into Christ, but Mike was very prone to making bad decisions. And one of the decisions that he made got him into trouble with the law, and he was sentenced to serve some time over at the New Lisbon Correctional Institution over here in New Lisbon. And, and during that time, I became a mentor with, for him and to him, and, and, and I would visit him regularly, and he got himself involved in a Bible study at this correctional facility. And, and so when I stopped to see him, he was just all excited uh, to tell me about this Bible study that he was in. But but what I found out was is that, well, his Bible study, there were two leaders that were actually there, and, and he's, he's like, well, yeah, my, here's my leaders, and he says, one of them is, happens to be a, quote, Christian minister, and he says the other uh, calls himself a Christian Wiccan minister. You can imagine how I felt. I mean, I'm just... And they were leading this study together and they were assuring these inmates that there was nothing wrong with that. And I trust that you don't agree with that. See, Satan is very subtle. Um, there's a popular TV show that's out right now. Well, I don't know how, if it's out now or not. I don't watch a lot of these things, but um, I don't know how, so I don't know how popular it is. But the name of it is The Good Witch. That's one of the things, by the way, that Wiccan does. They try to distinguish between good witches and bad witches, and the reality is witches are evil. Witches are evil. 
Uh, but, but, but Satan comes along and he's sly and he slowly draws us into things. And, and, and the next thing you, you know, I mean, one of the things I was talking with somebody about this morning was the fact that how, how Satan is getting in. And, and one of the things that they're trying to do is destroy families. I think I was talking with you about that, Pat. I mean, this is just something that, that is, it, it's not that it's just happening now. It's just that we're hearing about it now, but slowly and slowly and slowly over time, the, the whole idea of family and what they're trying to do, and they're coming out now and they're saying, this, this group is coming out and saying, we need to get rid of the family. We need to not have kids anymore. I mean, this is what they're talking about. Now, Satan is very subtle, and it's gotten us, taken us incremental steps in order to get where we're at, and, but he just, he's sly, he slowly draws us into things, and the next thing you know, we buy into this stuff, or we watch this stuff, and it's, you know, whether it's a, a show on television, I was watching something the other day, and it was like, and, 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 and not, not to, to poke at my kids, but we were sitting there, and I said, well, I don't, I don't really think we should be watching this. Well, what's wrong with this, Dad? And it's like, I'm, I'm hearing this for the first time. Now, frankly... We, we, actually, we watched a movie last night, and, and um, the interesting thing is, is that before we had kids, it was a perfectly good movie. And then I started listening to it last night, and I'm just cringing, and I'm like, and the question is, why didn't I turn it off? Um, but that's what he's like. He, it, it's just, um, it's a subtle undermining of the values of God placed in the life of humanity. But let me just tell me what I think what troubles me the most, because most of us, I think, are smart enough not to get caught up in, the, in, in, in something that, that is obviously Satanism. And, and you're smart enough not to get caught up in some of this subtle stuff. Well, we're smart enough, but maybe we're not paying attention sometimes. I'm speaking of myself, but, but I think that that's true of all of us. But yet, there, I, I think that there is something that everyone, every single person in this room has been caught in at least once that is just as satanic. It's called sin. And we all know where sin comes from. Satan is the father of sin. So every time you gossip, every time you are mean-spirited, every time that you refuse to forgive, every time that you just cheat or, or lie, well, I, I don't like that part, do you? Okay, so we're, we'll just quit. Because it's just too hard to think about succumbing to Satan. Because that's for the bad people. But see, that's exactly what he's trying to accomplish. He is out to destroy us by subtly undermining who we are. Did, did you notice that in, in, in verse 18 in this story, it's, it's, it's such an interesting and frightening comment. He says, I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Well, why? Why not? Do you, do you remember the comment? Remember uh, maybe several weeks ago, chapter 6 and verse 7, he, he sent them out with the power to cast out demons. They had that power, so what happened? They had that, the power to do it. Why did they not do it? Why did this father bring a demon-possessed son for healing and and the only thing the disciples can do is they can stand there with, with, their, with their teeth in their mouth and why couldn't they do it? 
Well, you have to remember, I think, that where Jesus is at the time, he's up on the mountain, and guess who's with him? Well, the same three guys that are always with him, Peter and James and John, and I mean, I mean, they're always with him. They're always there. Can't you imagine being the nine disciples down there in the valley again, you know, saying, okay, there they go, Peter and James and John, and we'll just sit down here and we'll, we'll just mind our own business until they get back. And all of a sudden along comes this father needing a miracle, and so they're going to do it. The only thing is nothing happens. What went wrong? Well, I wonder if there could be a clue in the text. Did you notice verse number 19, for example, when Jesus hears this question, why couldn't they do it? His response is this, oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Did you notice verse, in verse number 23, the man asks at the end of verse 22, he says, if, any, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus asks, if you can? Everything is possible for him who believes. And the Father says, I believe. Help my unbelief. Or look down particularly at verses 28 and 29 after Jesus has gone in indoors and, and his disciples ask him this privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he says, this kind can only come out by prayer. Well, what did they forget to do? See, I can tell you what they forgot to do. They forgot to ask for help. They, they tried to do this all on their own. Uh, we can do it. We'll show you. We don't need Peter. We don't need James. We don't need John. We don't need them around. We'll take care of this ourselves. Can I let you in on a little secret? You can't do it by yourself. I can't do it by myself. You will never succeed in this world against Satan by yourself. He will destroy you and leave you lying, lying on the ground like that little boy's corpse, shaking your head and wondering just what hit you. Because, see, faith is the key to this victory. Oh, unbelieving generation, this kind only comes out by prayer. Lord, help my unbelief. See, part of the difficulty, I think, is we live in this world where we think that we have God in a box. One commentator talking about this very text says that to trust in God's power in this sense that we we somehow imagine that we have in it, we have things, all these things in our own control and at our disposal is the same as unbelief. Because we're really trusting in ourselves instead of trusting in God. It, it's, it's, it's like God in a little box and, and he's supposed to act whenever we say act. And, and when you, you put God in that kind of box, you're not trusting in God, you're trusting in yourself. And... I think that the only way to win this battle is to realize that you, you can't do it by yourself. And to trust in the only one who can help you. But the question I think comes then for me is, 
how in the world do I avoid this God-in-the-box syndrome? How do I find that kind of spiritual power? How do I show my, to myself and to, my, and, and to God that, that I'm not depending upon me, upon Paul? It's going to sound really simple. I hate to have kept you for the last 30 minutes just to find out that this is something so easy. See, disciples demonstrate their, their faith when we pray. I think that that's what the disciples forgot to do. I think that they forgot to ask for help. And Jesus says in verse 29 that this kind of this kind only comes out by prayer, that this only happens when you turn to me and you ask me for help. I don't know if there is a clearer, more visible way in which I, as a Christian, am reminded that I am not in control. That than to be forced to go to God, to turn to him and to ask him for help. And yet, I have to be honest with you, with you that when I listen to my own prayers, my prayers are not cries for help. My prayers are instructions. Lord, here's how I want this done. Lord, here's what I expect you to do. Lord, here's how I want this answered. And then I get mad if God doesn't give it to me my way. And so then I'm arguing with God. God, you didn't hear me. God, you didn't answer my prayer. Well, he never said that he would do it our way. What he said was you come to me and demonstrate your faith in me by trusting me. And while our prayers may not change, while your prayers may not change much of reality, they will change you because they change the one that you depend upon. And you are no longer depending upon yourself. You're starting to depend on the one, the only one who can help. We cannot depend upon ourselves. We depend upon the one who sits on the throne. There's just no more visible way to say to God, I trust you than when we pray. And so that's what we need to become. My, my heart and my soul is that we become praying people because we cannot do it by ourselves. You know, sometimes I think that we don't pray because we're a little afraid it won't work. Like somehow if, 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 if things don't turn out our way that they're supposed to, or, or the way that they're supposed to, that we've you know, done something wrong, we somehow now have a big F on our, our report card. You ever get one of those? Anybody get uh, F on their report card? Anybody here? <laughs> Takes take, Some of you have to think a ways back, right? I've had a couple of those. Uh, don't remember what they were for, but I have uh, had them. I had a professor in Bible college, Mark Mangano was his name. Um, Susan remembers him. Susan probably got her first F from Mark Mangano. Um, and only F that she's had in her life. Um, but he failed everybody. That first test in his class, he failed everybody in the whole class. Uh, whatever class he was teaching, whether it was, uh, uh, whether he was teaching Hebrew, the language, or whether he was teaching Isaiah, which I think you were taking with him, she got an F. 
because he believed that it wasn't fair, fair for anyone to go through life without ever getting an F, without ever failing. I don't think it's a coincidence that G follows F in the alphabet. It's certainly not a coincidence in this passage that Jesus takes the same set of disciples and the very next verse he says, it, it says this, and he walked along the road and he taught them some more. <laughs> because when it comes to the Christian life, F is always followed by G and G stands for grace. And he never gives up on our failure he just invites you to come back one more time. Having learned the lesson, you can't do it alone. You're going to have to have my help, so let's try it again. And what an amazing picture of grace. So he invites you to trust him. And when you do, you can be confident that he will never turn you away. And that's grace. Let's pray together. Father, we just have an amazing picture in this text of a, of a great, great father who reaches out and who is always constantly there and willing to give us a second chance. And all you ask God of us is to trust in you. Above all things, not to trust in ourselves, not to think about ourselves, and to think what we want and all that, but to lay all that aside and to come to you and to recognize, God, that you are a sovereign, capable God and need to be trusted. Father, I'm convinced that if, if my life is, is any kind of an example of, 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 of what, what other people around us experience, uh, I contest that, that sometimes we just don't simply trust in you. We don't always trust in you. And we attempt to do things on our own because we think that we can. And so, Father, I say, I pray that you would help each of us here to come to that place where we, and that's a daily decision. It's not just a one-time thing. Sometimes we get out ahead of ourselves and we forget that you, in fact, are in control. And so I pray that you would help us to relearn that lesson over and over again. That we can trust in you. That we would have a sort of uncommon trust that we need to have. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.